want to ask you, can you think of a time in your life when you have been an outcast or an outsider? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe it was the time you were picked last on the playground. You remember that? Or maybe it was a little bit more serious. I know I've shared uh, before when our family moved from Minnesota to California when I was young, uh, I became an outcast in the neighborhood we moved into. I got bullied uh, by the kids there. And being an outcast was not a fun experience for me. It has marked me uh, even up to this day. And yet as I examine my life, I realize there's also been times, many times, when I've been the insider, if so to speak, right? I remember in high school in particular, you know, they break everybody up, and I was a part of the gifted kids. So I went to all the classes with all the same kids, right? Even that kind of grouping takes place uh, within schools. This is something that happens early on in life, and it happens everywhere. In fact, I put it this way, if you're falling on your notes with me this morning, humans are prone to create groups of outsiders and insiders, There's just something in our nature that wants to make distinctions among people. I heard a great story. Bishop John Reed was uh, working in South Africa, and he had a bus full of kids. Half of the kids were black, and half of the kids were white, and there was just constant racial tension in the bus. And he was driving the bus one day. He had enough. He pulled the bus over. He stopped. He pulled all the white kids together in one group and said, from now on, there are no more white kids in my group. There will only be green kids. So what color are you? And they all said white. And he said, no. What color are you? Green. He did the same thing with the black kids, right? There's no longer going to be black kids in my bus. What color are you? Black. No, you're not. What color are you? Green. So they all got back in the bus. He thought he had solved the problem when a little bit later down the road, he heard the words from the back of the bus, light green on this side, dark green over on this side, right? There is something in our human nature that draws us to creating classifications of people and groups. We like to decide who belongs and who doesn't. It can be as simple as nerds versus jocks or more serious, like blacks versus whites, Serbs versus Croats. I mean, we see this played out all over the world every day, outsiders and insiders. I mean, even last week, the last couple of weeks, you think about the riots in Baltimore. The issue there was that there is a group who perceives themselves as outsiders who are not being treated fairly. It's everywhere. But listen, these kinds of classifications that we make as human beings should not exist in the church of Jesus Christ. Chad already mentioned it. If you're a Christian and you see what the Bible, if you believe what the Bible says is true of the church, that you understand that the church, the church with a capital C, is much more than a place to come to hear some great songs and a decent sermon. God's vision for the church was much grander than that, much greater than that. And the church isn't just a place where you come to learn about a new identity, a new personal identity you have in Christ. His purpose in the church was to start a whole new society. The church is a place where people have to come to get along where they can't get along anywhere else in this world. That is God's glorious vision for his church. Now, let me just backtrack a little bit. If you haven't been with us since the very first Sunday of March, hard to believe, we have been in a series, as you can see from the banners here, called In Christ, where we are looking through at the first three chapters of Ephesians. We're going to look at the last three chapters next fall. And what we've been learning all the way up to last week when Pastor Jeff spoke on Ephesians chapter 2.10 is that we've been learning that once a person is placed in a relationship with Christ, they are given a new identity in Christ. And we've been learning about some of the identities we've been given. We have been chosen by God. 
We have been adopted. We have been redeemed. We have been accepted. We have been sealed. We have been made alive. We were once dead, but have been made alive. We've been saved by grace. And last week we saw that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece created to do great things. I mean, this has been some awesome stuff. And I'm just going to say, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, which is where we are this morning, Paul takes a major shift in the book of Ephesians. Even though Jeff started talking about the, this a little bit last week, there is a clear shift that takes place here. And if you're following on your notes, I put it this way. Paul moves from me to we regarding our identity in Christ. He moves from me to we regarding our identity in Christ. In other words, we're going to be talking now about our corporate identity as the church. Now, i got to make a confession to you. As I began preparing this week, I had this thought go through my mind. Oh, man, we're past all the good stuff now. We're past all this exciting stuff about my own personal identity, right? All this individual identity stuff uh, that's so encouraging to me, and I got to tell you, God convicted me to the core when I had that thought, and I knew I had to repent of that kind of thinking, and I have. You know, where does something like that come from? Well, in my country, in our country, when you agree that we live in what is called a radically individualized society, we are individualistic people. So listen, whenever we hear messages talking about our individual identity, what Christ has done for us, we are all ears, right? Our ears start perking up like this stuff matters. This stuff's important to me. I can't believe this is what Jesus has done for me. But as soon as we start talking about corporate things, we tune out a little bit. All the surveys show that as Americans, we are very anti-institutional. So listen, when we hear the Bible say, oh, I can make you a new person, we're like, yes. And I want to make you a new person with other people. We're like, uh, does it really have to be with other people? All the polls show this is true about our nation, friends. When we start talking about institutions, we start turning off. Some of it is because, as Tim Keller says, that makes some sense because Jesus is perfect and the church is not. But I'll tell you what, Jesus didn't just die so that we could get a new individual identity. He died to create a whole new society, his church. And Ephesians 2.11 on is going to start talking about what the church can be, what God's glorious vision is for the church with a capital C. If the individual change is the first evidence of God's power, then the second evidence of God's power is that he can take people, all kinds of people, diverse people, and bring them together and make them one. And I'm just going to say this. This is important. You cannot understand your individual identity. All that stuff we've been talking about the last 10 weeks, you can't understand that unless you understand it is meant to play it out, itself out in a community of other people. Okay, so that's what we're doing. This is a me and a we deal. For the next three weeks, really, this is what we're all going to be talking about. Give you God's vision, God's picture for the church. What the church ought to be, what the church can be. And I hope it will ignite your heart to say, I want that as much as I want my individual life to be changed by Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ, this is what Jesus wants. It's why he came. So let's pray as we begin, not just these, this morning, but let's, these next three weeks, really. Would you join me? Lord, I know I've already confessed to you, but maybe some of us in this room need to confess as well. When we hear the word church, 
uh, we tune out a little bit. When we hear other people, um, our ears aren't as open. But it's very clear in Scripture, Lord, that your vision was to create a new community of people. That's why you came. It's why you died. So we pray that you will now go before us, not just this morning, but these next three weeks specifically as we walk through this section in Ephesians and open up our eyes to see the vision you have for who we could be, yes, here at Cherry Hills, but also throughout the world, the church with a capital C. Let us be the people you envisioned us to be. We pray it in Jesus' power because it's the only way it's going to happen. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn them to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, we uh, try to encourage you every week to grab one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you there. Hopefully it's a little black Bible that says NIV on it, and you can find this on page 815. Now, as you're turning there, I want to say something a little personal. Uh, some of you are probably not going to remember this, but this is actually the first passage I ever preached at Cherry Hills almost 13 years ago before I was ever even hired. So I know all of you remember that from 13 years ago, so this will all just be a uh, review. But in all seriousness, there is some nostalgia here for me, and it was fun to look back and see how I've changed and, and to see Scripture different. I mean, Scripture is just never-ending, isn't it? There's so much more to it even during different seasons of our lives. And so that's been really exciting. And I'm going to break down this uh, section. We're going to go all the way through verse 18 into three sections. First, we're going to talk about in verses 11 and 12 what history tells us is the greatest outsider versus insider relationship known in history and the fact that all of us in this room were one-time outsiders. Second, I want to talk about how Jesus changed all that and he has made us insiders. And then third, I want to talk about Jesus' purpose for the church. So let's start chapter 2, verse 11 there. Are you ready? Paul starts verse 11 saying, Therefore, in other words, you've just learned all this amazing identity stuff about yourself individually. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. I'm just going to pause here. Uh, a study of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions that we think are so uh, contentious, were as contentious as this one right here, the one Paul is talking about between Jews and Gentiles. Remind me who Gentiles are again. We talked about this before. Who are they? Anybody who is not Jewish, right? The Jews believe that Gentiles, anybody who was not Jewish, were created to fuel the fires of hell. I'm not kidding. The Gentiles, especially the Romans during this time, they had hatred for anyone who was not of their own kind. They believed them to be enemies of the human race. Now, we can't catch it as much as 21st century readers, but in this verse, Paul is actually pointing out that hatred by referring to them as two classifications of people. He calls Gentiles, that's us, the uncircumcised. Now, when we hear that word today, we think of it in terms like a medical procedure. But when Jews used this term, it was, a, it was a term of abuse and scorn. One author said, this is major racial profiling going on right here. The uncircumcised. Jews had relegated all non-Jews as outsiders. They didn't belong. If you're falling on your notes, Gentiles were outsiders in God's kingdom. Of course, the guy who was writing this was a Jew, right? And he's going to go on to kind of call out Jews who continue to make this issue the divide between people. He refers to the Jews as the circumcision. 
And then I love what he says there in parentheses. Did you see that? He says, which is done in the body by human hands. In other words, it's just an external act done by human beings. Not that it isn't significant, but when it comes to the purpose of salvation, in God's eyes, circumcision of the heart was much more significant than any external act that they could do. In fact, uh, if you're following on your notes, I put it this way. While we make external distinctions, which is what they were doing here, God cares about the heart. God cares about the heart. Romans 2, 28 and 29 say it clearly. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. We make external distinctions between people, don't we? What does God look at? God looks at our heart. God looks at the internal person. Nevertheless, in verse 12, Paul is going to now talk about a time before Christ when those distinctions matter, when being a Gentile actually mattered. Gentiles were definitely outsiders at one time. Look at five ways we were outsiders. Remember at that, that at that time you were, number one, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. We had five huge disadvantages as Gentiles. First of all, we were separate from Christ. I think we should take that to mean the literal term, and Christ, uh, Christ in Hebrew was the Messiah, the anointed one. We had no hope of a Messiah. That was a promise giving, given to the Jews. So we were without the promise of a Messiah. Second, Gentiles are excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Out of all the nations of the earth, God had chosen Israel to to be his very own people. Gentiles were not a part of that nation. Third, uh, we are foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Within God choosing the nation of Israel, he had given them specific covenants, specific promises. Gentiles were foreigners to that. Fourth, we were without hope. That's pretty sobering. Have you ever used that phrase, this situation is hopeless? There aren't many worse places to be than in a hopeless situation, and yet that's exactly what Scripture says about us. We were hopeless. And then last but not least, we were without God in the world. Gentiles worshipped many gods, right? We worshipped many gods, but we didn't know the one true God. So look, to sum all that up again, before Christ... Gentiles were outsiders in God's kingdom. But just like he did way back in verse 4 of chapter 2, if you remember that, Pastor Brian preached on this, uh, Paul makes a big transition here, right? Remember in verse 4 he said, we used to be dead in our transgressions and sins. I mean, we were dead, but now. Christ has made us alive in Christ Jesus. And the same pattern here in verse 13. We used to be all five of those things as Gentiles, but read what happened in verse 13 to us out loud on your notes. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Great words, aren't they? We were once outsiders, but now. But now we have been brought Near Gentiles were separate from Christ, without hope, without God, but now we have been drawn near. We have been drawn near to him. How how was that accomplished? God intervened in our hopeless situation by sending his son who poured out his blood on the cross. 
If you're following, Christ's death has made outsiders into insiders. Christ's death has made outsiders into insiders. Now, how did Jesus accomplish this? This is really important. And Paul gives the answer in the following verses here. Look at verse 14. This is gonna, I'm going to unpack this a little bit. It might sound a little confusing at first, but verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now, what is Paul talking about here? What barrier did Christ destroy and enable to make peace between us and others? Many people believe that as Paul was writing this, I happen to believe this as well, as Paul is writing this, he is visually picturing the Jewish temple of his day. He's got a visual picture of the temple because it was a living reminder and a visible symbol of the barriers that existed among people. Let me show you what I mean. On the back of your notes, I have a little sketch there of the temple of Paul's day. And as I read this description, I'm just going to ask you to follow along on that sketch with me. I want you to see this and experience this. I know it's a little blurry, but hopefully you'll be able to uh, see what's going on here. James Boyce was helpful for me here, but this temple, the one you're looking at right here, was the temple built by Herod the Great to replace the older temple that was built by Nehemiah. Much of it was overlaid with gold, and it was the glory of the city of Jerusalem. I know that picture doesn't help you picture the splendor of it, but I had a purpose in putting that picture there. The temple sat on a raised platform on what today is still called the Temple Mount. Have you heard of it? Still a pretty significant place in world geography. Now here's the important part I want to point out to you this morning. The temple was surrounded by a series of courts. You're going to see them labeled there. The innermost court, I want you to find it, was called the Court of Priests. Can you see it there on your notes? Only male priests could enter into that court. The next court out was called the Court of Israel, or I think it may be labeled the Court of Men, because that court was where any male Jew could enter. They couldn't go into the, the Court of Priests, however, but they could go into the Court of Israel, or the Court of Men. After that, you see the third court out is called the Court of Women. This is where any Jew could enter, any Jewish person could enter, but it was as far as a woman could go in the temple complex. So notice, there's already distinctions being made, right, between outsiders and insiders, but none of them are as great as the next division that came. From the court of women, you would take five steps down to a level area where a big wall was erected. And on this wall, we archaeologists uncovered this just a, a couple hundred years ago. There were these signs posted everywhere on this wall, that they, and they read this. No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. In other words, you get to this level of the temple, and these signs are in front of you. You know the signs today that say trespassers will be prosecuted? These said trespassers will be killed. They will be killed. In fact, you remember when Paul comes to Jerusalem, this is a little side note here, he gets arrested, and the reason he gets arrested is because some people accused him of actually bringing Gentiles into places, into the courtyard, where they were not allowed to go. So we're talking about a serious barrier here. And then, it was after this wall, you would walk down another 14 steps, way down below, which is where Gentiles could come, called the Court of Gentiles. Okay, so... Understand, this is the picture Paul has in mind as he's writing verses 14 and 15, in my opinion. 
And to understand what Jesus did in order to destroy those barriers, we have to understand one more thing about the temple. Don't turn over yet. In the picture, you can see that even after the court of priests, do you see there's one more barrier? Within the temple itself, separating the holy place, again, any priest could enter there, from the holy of holies. Do you see the holy of holies? That one more barrier. And there, only one priest could enter one time a year, the great high priest, and he could only enter that place after offering a sacrifice for himself and his family. Between those two places was a great barrier. It was called a veil. It was a great divide. Maybe you can even see the little line separating the sanctuary from the Holy of Holies. That's the curtain. This curtain was about six inches thick. The purpose of it was to seal off the inner temple. In the Holy of Holies, that is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it was believed that is where the presence of God symbolically dwelt. So in other words, I just all this learning, I hope this is interesting to you, but it has a point. It's simply to show that the entire system of this inner veil and all these outer courtyards and outer walls was not merely to show the differences between us, between Gentile and Jew and man and, and woman and so forth and so on. And it's also to show a, a great difference between us and God. The most fundamental barrier existed between God and all of his people. We were all outsiders, in other words, when it came to God. We were all blocked off from a relationship with him. This veil kept anyone from going into his presence. Now, I hope you see this is where this all comes together as New Testament believers. Do you remember the incident from Matthew's account of Jesus' death when it says that the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom? Do you remember that? What is it talking about? Well, it's a reference to this very veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And the fact that it's torn from top to bottom, what do you think that indicates? It wasn't done by any human being. That would have been from bottom to top. God, in the death of Jesus Christ, has torn the barrier down that separated human beings from his presence forever. Now, when we come to God in faith through Jesus Christ, anyone can approach God. Amen and amen. If you're following there, in Christ's death, the barrier between us and God was destroyed. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says it so well. Look up at the screen with me. Once you were alienated from God. Who was alienated? All of us. And we're enemies. We were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Jesus' death has accomplished that for us. Nothing but the blood. We sang earlier. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The cross shows us that Jesus has died so that everybody and anybody, male, female, black, white, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, we can all come into God's presence on equal terms. The cross levels. The cross breaks down barriers that have been erected for centuries. If you're following, friends, just as Christ's death destroys the barrier between us and God, so too the barriers between us and others can be destroyed. In other words, his purpose wasn't this to destroy the veil that separated us from him. His purpose was to destroy all those little veils 
we make up all over this world. All those barriers that we build between us and other people. This theme is so obvious and clear throughout Scripture. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, then there cannot be a barrier between us and others who are also in Christ. You know, Jeff has used that illustration in many weeks. You have your message notes, and he said, you know, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, we are, he places it in his Bible, you know, like we're in Christ. So I want you to imagine, there's right in this room, hundreds of message notes in that Bible. And not one of us have the right to kick one of those message notes out of the Bible. We are in Christ. We have been placed in Christ. We are all in Christ. We are one. Christ's body cannot be divided. If we are in him, we are members of one body. Peace has been restored to all. So listen, the cross doesn't just change the way you look at yourself. Does it change the way we look at ourselves and our relationship with God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we all have access to God now. We can approach him with boldness and confidence. It changed everything in our relationship with God, but it also should change the way we look at other people, especially people in the church. Creating categories of insiders and outsiders, I'll just name some of them, right? Racism, classism, favoritism. These things have no place within the church of Jesus Christ because if you're following on your notes, in Christ, we've been made into one body. That is his purpose for the church, to make us into one body. Paul goes on to say this very thing in the, in the next verse here. God had two purposes in mind. Uh, the first is what I just said, to make us into one body, and it's described in verse 15. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes there? It says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This says that Jesus created a new man, a new humanity, a new race. What is that race? It's the church. The church is the picture of what Jesus Christ did. Back in the second century, one of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, wrote this. He said, we who worship God in a new way are the third race, Christians. Jesus didn't come, you got to understand this, he didn't come to Christianize Jews, nor did he come to Judaize Christians, right? He made an entirely new humanity, the church. So if you're following on your notes there, Christians aren't just equal. I mean, the cross levels, it makes us all equal before God. That's important. I'm not saying that's not important, but it's more than that. If you're following, they've all been joined. We're not just equal. We're actually joined together now, whether Jew, Gentile, black, white, nerds, or jocks. We are joined together as one body. I was thinking of a way how to illustrate it this week, and I was reading about the, I'm going to totally butcher the pronouncement of this, but the Monongahela and the Allegheny Rivers. These rivers are in Ohio. I have a picture of these two rivers here. I want you to see. This is kind of cool. I hope. Yep. Okay, so you see the Allegheny and the Monongahela River. And at, at, at one point, they connect. They are joined. And guess what? One of them doesn't become the other river. It's not like the Allegheny just swallows up uh, the, I'm not even going to say, the M River. 
it becomes an entirely new river. It becomes the Ohio River. You can see a real picture of it um, where it actually exists. You see that point where it becomes one. It's not that one stream is merged into the other. It's that from that place, from that picture, it takes on an entirely new character. It's an entirely new river. And if you are in Christ and in God's sight, that's what happened to you. You and I and whoever else is in this room, we all were living our own lives. And the moment we came to faith in Christ, we have been joined together into one people called the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. This is God's glorious vision. And it leads to the second purpose Jesus had in destroying these earthly barriers and creating one body. If you're following in Christ, we've been reconciled in order to be reconcilers. Why did he do all this? Why did he create one body? So that we could carry on the same thing he did for us in the cross. That we could be a people of reconciliation. Look at verse 16. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. Who is he talking about? Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. Who is he talking about? Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You know that word reconciliation is an in word right now, isn't it? We hear a lot about it, and its most basic definition, if you're following on your notes, is just moving from a hostile to a friendly relationship. Moving from a hostile to a friendly relationship. That's Christ's purpose for the church. He first reconciled us to himself. We were enemies of God in our sin, in our trespasses, but he has made us friends of God. How? In Christ. And yet he then wants us as this one new body to do the same with other people, right? I, I, like, how, I like to think of it this way. If, if God can remove the greatest barrier that existed, how can his people not be about removing the lesser barriers that we've created? That's his purpose for the church. Now, how important is this? Well, Jesus would say this to his disciples in John 13, 35. Read these words out loud with me on your notes. He says, by this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Pretty important. This reconciliation stuff, it's pretty important that we learn how to love one another in the church. Our duty as the church is to live in harmony with our brothers and sisters who have been joined together with us and to let the world know we are in this together. Indeed, if you're following the church's greatest witness is how we treat one another. The bottom line, again, listen, if God can remove the barrier between you and him, he's going to invite you to be a barrier breaker between you and other people as well. We might as well save our breath if we want to tell people about Jesus, but we can't show them this as the church, right? Paul says, this is an evidence of God's power. You can get up on a street corner and talk all day about Jesus, but if we can't show the world this, this oneness, this unity, then we could probably save our breath. Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write these words, to tell us that this is 
God's purpose and vision for his people, the church. To be one body and to be about the business of reconciling relationships that have been broken down in our culture, in our world, in our city, and so forth and so on. And when we get about that business, everybody is going to be astonished and know something is different about that community of people. Jesus says, one of my purposes in dying was to create a new humanity, a place where barriers are broken down. So let's bring this home this morning and ask, how do we go about the business of doing that? How how can we be barrier breakers? Well, the first thing is, I just want to ask an honest question here, which is, if you're following, am I committed to seeing reconciliation occur in the church? I mean, is this even something you want to see? Now, I'm not just talking about Cherry Hills, though I am talking about Cherry Hills. I'm talking about the larger church. I realize not all of you are members of Cherry Hills here. You might be visiting from other cities. You're visiting from other churches. That's fine. I'm not necessarily saying you've got to be committed to doing this at Cherry Hills, but are you committed to doing it somewhere? This is God's vision for his church with a small C and church with a capital C. One of the purposes of the cross was to create a reconciled humanity. So are we committed to this? Only you can answer that in your heart. If you are, the next obvious question is, how do I show my commitment? Well, obviously, I hope you would understand that one message cannot possibly answer all of the ways that we could go about doing this reconciliation business. In fact, there are many books that have been written by this subject. One I just read recently is fantastic by Tony Evans called Oneness Embraced. Loved it. So if, if this is a passion God has laid on your heart, uh, get, read some of these things. Learn how to be about this business. But I will mention two ideas just to get us started here. Number one, we must repent of any barriers we've erected. I'm talking about personal barriers that you have in your own life. And I'm talking about corporate barriers that maybe we've erected and we don't even know in the church. Listen, if you have an attitude that in effect says, he's not of my kind, she doesn't belong here, they're outsiders, then you need to call it what God calls it, that is sin, and it needs to be confessed and repented of. Repent just means changing your mind to what God thinks. We have to think how God thinks about other people, especially the church. I shouldn't have said that, about other people, period about other people, period, but how that plays out in the church is what I I mean there. I agree with John Stott, who was talking about this as a church, as a corporate level, and he said, we need to get the failures of the church on our conscience, to feel the offense to Christ and the world which these failures are, to weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk, to repent of our readiness, to excuse and even condone our failures, and to determine to do something about it. And that's really number two there. What can we do about it? We must seek to actively break down walls that still divide. Break down walls that still divide. How do you do this? Well, gosh, there's tons of ways. There's tons of ways you could do that. One would be to get involved with issues of justice and peace. We need to seek equal treatment for people in our society who don't have a voice. 
who aren't heard in the church or in our world, who have barriers that have been built up that they can do nothing about. I mean, we have opportunities right here in our city to do those kind of things. We partner with ministries uh, in our church, Washington Street Mission, Contact Ministries, Enos School. I mean, there's ways to go about doing this right here, right now in the city of Springfield. It can be even more personal, though. It can simply be starting a friendship with someone who might not normally fit inside of your circle. Some of you have seen the movie 42, you know, talking about Jackie Robinson and how he was the first African-American baseball player. And Jackie tells a time, and I think this was in the movie as well, when he made a fatal error. He played second base. He made a fatal error. uh, And they were playing at their home stadium, and the home crowd was jeering him, booing him, slurring him. And he was standing there at second base when all of a sudden Pee Wee Reese, who played shortstop at the time, came over put his arm around Jackie Robinson and looked up at the crowd and everybody went silent. And Jackie Robinson was later quoted as saying, that arm around my shoulder saved my life. It doesn't have to be dramatic, drastic things. It can be as simple as an arm around somebody's shoulder who doesn't ever get that. Last thing I'll just mention another way I was convicted about this is to pray. Pray that the church, pray that our church, pray that every church that names the name of Jesus would be a place of reconciliation where walls break down. I gotta say, I've been praying for Cherry Hills for years now about this. This is a passion of mine. Maybe you have seen that. I've been praying that we could be the kind of body that God envisioned, that we could could create a community here that God envisioned when he sent his son to die on the cross. Would you join me in praying for that, for Cherry Hills, but pray for that, for the church at large as well. Friends, the church is meant to be a place where God is building a new community of people who are about the business of reconciliation. So if you're following on your notes, I'll leave us with this question. Will I pursue God's vision of unity for his church? It takes an individual decision to make a corporate change. So will you pursue God's vision of unity for his church? If the answer is yes, I will ask you to simply consider. Don't just put your notes away and think, oh, that was an interesting message. What is one step God might be asking you to take this week? What is one step, one thing, doesn't have to be huge, that God might be asking you to do this week? I want to give you some time to reflect on that. And after that time, I'm going to close with Jesus' prayer from John 17. If you want to know what Jesus' heart really was for his church, it's this. He prayed for this very thing in John 17 before he left this world. So I'll close with that after a time of silent reflection. So why don't you turn to the Lord?
And now, Lord, we listen to the words that Jesus prayed for us, his church in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. May it be so. Amen.